Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, we're joined by Susie Wolf, former professional racing driver, former CEO of Venturi Racing, and founder of Dare to Be Different. In the driving seat, Susie made history in 2014 as the first woman to take part in a Formula One race weekend in 22 years, all the while using data as a crucial tool to optimize her performance. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Susie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Susie, many people who aren't close to racing might not know just how important data is to the world of racing and how 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 much incremental improvement drives that. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the 800 sensors on the car and how they're put to use to drive some change and difference in terms of how the car is set up and how it performs. Absolutely. Well, data is really at the core of everything we do in motorsport, because as you can imagine, it's man and machine. And for that machine to be the fastest machine out on track, we need to make sure that every area of the car is performing at its best. In Formula One, the data is live, which means there are over 800 sensors on the car that is sending live data back to the pit garage. Obviously, that's a huge load of data, and a lot of that data is then sent back to the factories where the Formula One teams operate from because the race teams are limited in number of engineers that they have and the the sheer load of data which comes in um, takes a huge amount of combing through to understand where the performance gains can come from and on the longer term where the performance gains in terms of the car's design and um, consistency can come. So at the core is very much the data on the car performance side but also for the drivers. Um, When I started racing over 30 years ago um, it was very basic data um, which meant you could basically see where your teammate was quicker, but you didn't have much more information. Whereas now it's very much the case that as soon as your teammate may be quicker over one lap or even on certain corners, you can see every element of how he or she is driving from the steering input um, to the brake pedal input to the load on the damper on their car compared to yours. I mean, so many different channels which allow us as drivers um, to really find those marginal gains out on track, which can be the difference between getting pole position and being sixth on the grid. And in fact, you have a fascinating story about those changes and the impact that they can make to pole position about a story that happened at the Malaysian Grand Prix. I wonder if you could share that story. Absolutely. It was a story which also was hugely inspirational to me because it demonstrated just how far the the sport has advanced because in the Malaysian Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton went out on track to go for his last qualifying run. It was a shootout for obviously pole position. And as he did his warm-up lap, the lap as you start your flying lap, he had a problem in his engine um, and that problem was picked up back in Brackley. The person responsible back in Brackley, I mean thousands of miles away, managed to very quickly find a solution to that problem on the engine. He radioed that solution through um, to the head of the engine department at the track, who then passed it on to Bono, who is Lewis's engineer. Bono then directed Lewis to change two settings on the steering wheel. And then with the space of half a lap, they had sorted the problem in the engine, which allowed Lewis to start the lap with no issue. 
and he went on to uh, capture pole position. And, and that just shows the might of live data. A problem was picked up thousands of miles away and within within the space of uh, under 30 seconds, the problem was rectified. And that's the difference. That makes a difference between starting on pole and winning the race or not finishing the qualifying, starting at the back of the grid and, and struggling to make any points. It's also remarkable about how many people are looking at data and how far away they are. So I think on a Formula One team, you have something like 2,000 people, but you're only allowed to have a very small portion of that that are there. What are, who, who are these people that are not present and what are they doing with this data and what are they looking at? It's really interesting when you look at the, the structure of a Formula One team. You have for Mercedes, in Mercedes, for example, 1,000 on the chassis side and 1,000 on the engine side. And as my husband mm. likes to say, we don't play football like five-year-olds where we're all chasing the same ball. Everybody has their area of expertise and their area where they're responsible for the performance. Obviously, there are those that are responsible for the design of the car. And as soon as a car has been launched, they then start on the following season's car. Um, there's those that are responsible for the various performance elements in the car in the current season. So this huge volume of data that's created is very much split into performance gains that can happen or decisions that have to happen very quickly based on the data. That's those at the track, around 70 engineers responsible for very quickly reading the data in a space of hours and through that data making changes on car setup to find performance in immediate time. The other huge volume of data is obviously sent back to the factory. We have a simulator running 24 hours over a race weekend so a driver can parallelly, parallel sit in the simulator and try um, the data which is coming out of the, the race car, A, to check the correlation but B, to also check if they can find performance in the setup, which can then be fed back the following morning to the track. So I'm making it sound quite complex, but there's basically a lot of people in very specialised areas that are digesting all the data. And it's up to them to find the performance from the data, because one element which also has to be taken into consideration is not getting lost in the data. Such right. vast amounts of data can also make it quite challenging not to get lost in all of the numbers. Yeah, I think that there's another human element that you've described, which is not only do the human beings that are doing these analysis with great expertise, they need to be careful not to get lost in the numbers, but also your driver is a wild card. So it's not just as if there's a bunch of um, hardware uh, moving around the track. There's there's software in there too, if you get my meaning. Um, so what, what level of, of complexity does that human being introduce? Well, interestingly, the human being isn't even software because the human being has emotions. The human being can have good days, have bad days. And that, if you would ask any engineer, they always say the driver is the one component they can't control. Um, but of course, you know, in Formula One, you have very, very talented drivers. Um, drivers that are also able to bring a certain consistency every time that they jump into the car. But it's also quite a balancing act because no matter what the data says, um, if a driver is not comfortable in a car, and I've had that instance in my own career where all of the numbers say you have the perfect setup, but if you don't feel confident in the car, if you don't feel like the car is braking properly or turning in well enough, we call it understeer or oversteer, 
you don't have the capabilities in the car of pushing that car to the limit and finding those last tenths of a second that can make the difference between winning a race or losing a race. And that's very much where the balancing act happens. You need to trust the data. The driver needs to rely on the data also for their own um, performance. But there has to also be an element of listening to the human and understanding that as much as the data can provide the right route and the right road to take, you still need to rely on the instincts of the driver because they are the ones that have to go out on track and ultimately perform. Yeah, I think we often talk about something like this as um, the world of augmented and intelligence as opposed to artificial, which is machines and data can help a human being to become more human and as opposed to becoming more like a machine. Um, have you had situations where you've been in a position to explain to the driver the conditions and the data? And how have you gotten to the point where there can be a better form of trust about that data or or quite the opposite? Have you, have you used the driver's intuition to help you understand that the data isn't quite as interesting or useful as you thought? I think it's both, to be honest. When we had in, in, in this sport, we had a situation many years ago where testing was banned. And testing is obviously crucial in us finding the right setup in the car and, and finding that extra performance. So when testing was banned for... Um, cost-cutting reasons, all the teams started to build incredible and very complex simulators. They decided that the testing would happen digitally. Um, But of course, those simulators can, to a certain degree, um, bring a huge amount of knowledge in terms of the data, but they need to be very well correlated. Um, And that's a great challenge because no matter all the data you feed in, the elements which have no data points, the weather, the temperature, the temperature of the tyres, um, all of those, let's say, open elements make it very, very difficult for a simulator to be an exact correlation of what's happening on track. So I do think that the trust is built up by the correlation functioning, that the simulator actually brings um, performance. And that has, in many instances, um, been the case where um, the input from the simulator driver has added to performance on track. So that obviously creates a huge amount of trust from the driver and from the team. But there's also been situations where you can be completely lacking in, in pace out on track and struggling for performance um, and you get lost in the numbers and sometimes you have to go back to the basics and trust your own st- instincts of what feels right. And I've also had that situation in, in running my, my Formula E team previously where we got completely lost in, in the data and we had to go back to basics and rely on the engineers at track um, to use their previous knowledge and experience to, to bring the performance. I love that story. It's uh, it's such an interesting combination of uh, data and human being instincts that, that make these differences. Um, I wonder if you could point out some changes. You mentioned how, how important it is in Formula One that these data changes are coming to you in real time. What are some things that you would do on a week-to-week basis, let's say, to your car, versus things that you would make and changes during the race itself based on data that was being fed to you? It's a very interesting question. And obviously, the challenge for us in motorsport is made quite complex in that there can be regulation changes. And that's predominantly in the sporting regulations, which can massively affect um, the data that you've previously had. It can, in in some instances, make it obsolete. Um, And that then means you're starting from zero 
and very much having to learn very quickly with the new set of regulations where the optimum performance is. And examples of that have been small changes in the aerodynamic regulations, which means suddenly your car has to run with different aerodynamic parameters, which means all the data you've previously had is is then obsolete. And that means that on the mid to long term, um, you very much have to focus on getting what you think is the best short term uh, set up in place, but very much looking on the mid to long term as to where the performance is. Generally, on a race weekend, um, the biggest variables are, like I said, the weather, which is something out of your control. Obviously, big changes in temperature. Um, if you're running in a session at midday um, compared to later in the day, it's it's incredible what difference air temperature and track temperature uh, can make to the performance of the tyres. And all of these things, obviously, you can try and factor them in, um, but you can't always be prepared uh, for every eventuality. So you need to be able to take quick decisions um, and you need to sometimes be able to foresee what the challenges could be. And obviously that comes down a lot to experience um, over built up over many, many years in the industry where you start to understand what can be thrown at you on the short term, but also the mid to long term. You mentioned the idea of regulations changing. And my understanding is that pretty much every four years, I guess it depends on what level of racing you are, that you kind of have to start from scratch. So you've got this really rich source of data, you're making these incremental improvements. And then you need to start from scratch with a brand new car. Um, and I've heard you say that the 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 emphasis shifts quickly um, to agility and your ability to make good decisions quickly. Um, probably fail fast, uh, make some decisions. I wonder if you could talk about what that's like when you have to start from scratch. It's a great challenge and and one that can sometimes be a little bit frustrating because, for example, in Formula E, we came off the back last season having fought for the World Championship. We lost it by 20 points, but we were in a situation where it was our fourth year with that car and with that power unit. And we had simply maximised our performance. We had found a consistency, we'd found a base setup which was working very well and we were fighting for podiums every race weekend. Suddenly the season ended, that car was going into retirement, would become obsolete and we were given our new cars with our new set of regulations and it's very much a case of really forgetting everything in the past and coming with fresh eyes and looking at the new car as simply a fresh challenge. And it's quite interesting because in this sport, particularly in the Formula E paddock, there are certain teams that are known for being quick out of the box. And in that terminology, we mean they have a quick understanding of of a new car and that enables them to get a big advantage early in the season because they've simply found the areas that make the biggest difference to performance. And that's very much in all of the technical meetings we will do before a big regulation change, we will figure out, okay, what areas of this new car, which area do we think is going to have the biggest impact on performance? Um, On the last car, it was the brake-by-wire system. It was something completely new, and actually the team which got on top of that the quickest went on to win the championship two years in a row. So it's very much Mm. about figuring out which area is going to bring that performance, and then slowly but surely you work down all the different areas of the car by year three and four, you're looking at very, very small marginal gains. Um, but the big learning has to happen quickly because if you get left behind, um, it's very, very difficult to catch up as a team. 
And is your data collection approach different at that point? Or, or is your investigation a little bit different? Or are you, you still relying on the same kinds of data and the same people? It's still the same sensors in the same places. And obviously the learnings, and that's where experience always plays a big role, the learnings from previous seasons can have an impact. Um, but basically, you are starting from zero. You need to be much more diligent in the data that's created, that you're not missing something. And that's certainly the case of what happened in Formula One this year. Um, all the numbers um, showed that many teams had, had built great race cars, but they had underestimated the porpoising, which was the bouncing um, generated at, at higher speeds. And that's something nobody was able to simulate in their wind tunnels or in their simulations. So then it became very much a race as, as to who could get that under control the quickest. And that does mean you need to be quite um, open with your thinking. You need to sometimes disregard what's happened in the past and say, OK, this is a new problem. Which data is going to be relevant for us to look at and search through in order to solve this problem? And And that took the team's quite a long time to figure out because it was something that they hadn't, in the last 20 years of the sport, they hadn't experienced. And those engineers um, from the 80s, they had experienced poor poisoning before and they got on top of the issue uh, much quicker. So sometimes it is a case mm. of it being something completely new, which throws up a challenge. And it's very much about um, being able to dive into the data with open eyes and figure out the problem. That's a fascinating insight. I think that professionally, people have the same kind of situations in which there are these newfangled techniques. There are new ways of looking at things. And sometimes you are relying on experience and experience of people who have been there and seen these things the longest that is actually the thing that'll get you there fastest. So it's not necessarily the data. It's your institutional knowledge and the combination of your data and your human instincts. It definitely is. And, you know, when you look at a motorsport team, what does a team really come down to? It doesn't come down to the quality of the data that your car generates because a well-run team, every team will create the same data, obviously depending on the small variations between the cars. What makes a difference are the humans, the humans that are being employed to read the data, digest the data and make decisions based on the data. And that's something which which definitely can't be underestimated. Um, like we touched on before, data is, is hugely valuable, but even more valuable are the humans that are uh, reading and digesting the data because they are the ones that ultimately need to make a decision. And my husband always loves to say data is great, but data doesn't take decisions. Um, that's where you definitely right. need the knowledge in-house um, and the experience is a, is a huge advantage for those engineers that are making the decisions. Susie, there are a lot of parallels between your world of racing and the business world. I wonder if you could call out some specific examples of areas in which you've had to focus that have really been helpful uh, to you as a as a professional that might be of interest to other professionals that might be listening. I think particularly in, in the world of motorsport, um, our way of doing business has changed massively in the last two years. There was an old saying the more you spend, the faster you go, which was very much the case in our sport. But through the introduction of cost caps, which very much limit the amount the team is allowed to spend, we have become people that have to be hugely efficient. We need to analyse exactly which area brings performance because that area obviously can get expenditure and we need to make sure that the organisation um, is being run with huge efficiencies um, because in the past, the efficiencies weren't as important because you could simply put a lot of time and energy 
um, into to each area of the car. So that's really meant that the data has driven us to finding out which areas bring the most performance. And it's become financial engineering. Um, financial data is guiding us also um, in terms of where the performance comes in the car. And it brings such a new element uh, to going racing because now for, with the same amount of money, which team is going to produce a quicker car? Um, in the past, the expenditure has always been open, which meant which group of engineers are simply going to build and design the fastest car. So it's a really interesting uh, transi- transition within the sport. And it obviously means we have a much more robust um, business case for the mid to long term. And it's extra challenging. But also, I think, right, in, in this economic climate, um, having a, a limit on what you can spend is is something which I think is good for the sport. So I think a lot of parallels um, that can cross over. Obviously, that balance between on-track performance and financial success um, needs to be, always be accounted for. So you made a transition from Formula One, and you were um, wildly successful and the first uh, female driver in 22 years to ride on a weekend. Uh, to Formula E, I wonder if you can describe what Formula E is, what attracted it to, what attracted it to you, um, and you kind of hung up your racing gloves for uh, an ownership stake and, and a management stake. And so, uh, talk, talk through what is Formula E, and uh, how did you get interested, and what was your role? It's actually a very funny story because I was one of the cynics. Um, at the very beginning of Formula E, I was approached by a team to race for them. And at that time, I was already a test driver in Formula One. And I said, no way, I'm not interested. And then um, four years down the line, I got a phone call from a gentleman that I'd known um, previously, Shildo Pastor. And he said, what about coming to, to run my Formula E team for me? And I said, Formula E, that's never going to function, Shildo. Um, I was one of the cynics, but because at that point, Dieselgate hadn't happened. So the electrification of the automotive industry hadn't really picked up momentum. But Gildo was quite persistent. He kept calling and eventually said, look, just come to New York and and watch a race. And I remember distinctly standing uh, in the middle of a racetrack in Brooklyn. I could see the Statue of Liberty and there was electric racing cars driving around. And at that moment, I thought, okay, I think this has something. This definitely has something. Of course, at home, I was hearing the murmurs that Daimler, the parent company of Mercedes-Benz, were very much focused on electrification in their future business. And I had the opportunity to enter Formula E with Gildo. Um, the Formula E cars are all electric. Um, the, the championship races in city centres. So we really bring racing to the people. We don't expect people to travel out to a track in the middle of nowhere. We, we very much bring and showcase the electric technology t- into city centres. It's a one-day event. They build up the track for just for one day. And for me, I think what also compelled me to join is the fact that we were racing with a purpose. We were racing, we were attracting new audiences, we were showcasing a new technology that would be the future of the automotive industry. And we were the exciting young startup. You know, Formula One has been around for more than 60 years and Formula E is just entering its ninth year. Um, So for me, it was in a very exciting environment to be in. I loved what we stood for. We were racing with purpose, like I mentioned. And obviously that sustainability story has become such a big topic um, for all of business. And I think it's something which I'm also passionate about. You know, being, being a mother, I want to leave this planet in a good place for the next generations. 
And so from a mechanics perspective, for people not familiar with Formula E, uh, do you have to recharge the car during the race or instead of refueling? Or what are the rules? Is, are there hybrids that are allowed? Like what are the what are the rules that govern Formula E? Well, it's a very different uh, business model to Formula One. In Formula One, each team has to build their car from scratch. Every bolt, every element of the car has to be designed in-house. In Formula E, 80% of the car is standardized, which means for every team, for the, the 11 teams competing, 80% of the car is the same. So there's actually um, much more parity between the teams. It was generated to create a much more even playing field, which I think it uh, definitely did. To your point, no, we did a race on one battery and it was very much the challenge of how best to use the energy we had. Every car had the same amount of energy because the batteries were standardised. We didn't, the Formula E um, promoters didn't want to create a battery race, so all the batteries were the same in every car. But the real element where performance was gained was in the strategy. When did we use our energy? Um, did we attack early on, the, on in the race? Did we attack late in the race? Could we save energy in the slipstream of the car ahead? And that's where we would spend days um, on our simulator going through all the software to create the optimum race. And it was up to the drivers in the car to really execute what we believed was um, the most advantageous strategy. And that was a part that I loved because it was very dynamic during a race. If we made a bad start, we sometimes had to change the strategy. If we made a good start, we obviously were able to save energy. And that was one element of the racing, which which I really enjoyed. We didn't, on the Gen 2 cars, have any recharging. But in the new cars, which will hit the road in December, they will have uh, a recharging, recharging element during the race. It's fascinating. So how did you get into racing? Um, my understanding is that you were born in a small town in Scotland, known uh, more for its, uh, not at least by us Americans, for its output of scotch, which uh, I'm happy that to uh, help your local economy there, and uh, that your, your dad owned a motorcycle shop. Um, so how did you get into racing? There's quite a strong history of, of racing in Scotland alongside, obviously, it's great whiskey. Um, but yes, you like you <laughs> rightly said, my, my dad had a motorbike shop, so I had a little motorbike from the age of two. I was one of those very competitive little girls that loved speed. I loved the adrenaline. So I was always on my little motorbike. Um, but I think at one point my dad felt four wheels were safer than two wheels. And he bought me a cart for my eighth birthday. And that's really where it all started. But many people presume I was a, a great talent initially when I jumped in the cart, but quite the opposite was true because I remember distinctly my first time in the go-kart, I got out on track and everyone was much quicker than me flying past and they were kind of bumping me as they were going past. And I came back into the pits in the paddock area and I said to my dad, oh, I, I definitely don't like that out there. You know, they're much quicker. They're kind of pushing me as they're going past. My dad said, you know, we've got two options now. We can put the cart back in the truck and head home. It's no problem. Or you go back out there and you simply try and go faster. And when they push you, you're going to push them back twice as hard. So I think you can all guess which option I went for. I got back out there and mm -hmm. I loved I loved racing. But at the age of eight, you're not thinking of, of a career or of the future. You're simply doing what you love in the moment. And for me, it was, was racing. I'd really found my passion and I'm incredibly grateful to my parents who never made me believe I was doing something unusual for a girl. I have a brother who's only 18 months older than me and they treated us both as, as equals and it all really changed for me 
at the age of 13, I was taken to watch a Formula 3 race, which is a junior category to Formula 1. And I remember distinctly on that day um, understanding that, okay, I could become a racing driver and I could make it to Formula 1. And that's really when the goal and the dream was born in my head. I was going to be a racing driver and I was going to make it to Formula 1. And I then progressed through the ranks up to world championship level karting. I was ranked 15th in the world. I then progressed to Formula Renault, was a British Young Driver of the, the Year finalist, and then I made it to Formula 3. I unfortunately broke my ankle um, and had a very tough, tough year out. But then I got picked up by Mercedes-Benz and I raced for them for seven years in the German Touring Car Championship, which led to the opportunity in Formula 1. So incredibly grateful to have had the journey I did. It was very tough at times. You know, sport is brutal. There is only ever one winner and everyone wants to win so you need to be able to cope with failure you need to be very resilient um, but I got to do something I loved for a long time so I'm, I'm very grateful. So I wonder if you could describe the process of what you how you decided what you wanted to do after your racing and, and how you got into leadership and uh, how your notions of what racing is like is are different as a leader as opposed to the person behind the wheel. Well, when I stopped racing, I was pretty sure I wouldn't move into the business world of motorsport. I had studied international business at, at university, but obviously st stopped um, before I graduated to focus on being a racing driver. But I was sure I wanted to enter um, the business world. By that time, my husband was a, a multiple world champion with Mercedes in Formula One. I knew I didn't want to work for him. didn't think that would be very constructive for our marriage. But I also I knew that. I didn't want to work for a, <laughs> a competing team to Mercedes. So I very much looked at, at different opportunities. I, I looked at a fashion investment because we have an investment office in the family, family office. I looked at fashion. I looked at wellness. Very sure it wouldn't, it wouldn't be in motorsport. But of course, the opportunity came in Formula E and... It felt right. I'm someone that relies a lot on my gut feeling. And obviously, I was very lucky to to have watched my husband um, become world champion in Formula One. So I had a very good feeling of, of what it took and what the challenges were. And, and I believed that I could take on the challenge. And it was tough initially, very tough, because the team I joined was, was last. They, they were struggling for sponsors. They were struggling for on-track performance. And I told my business partner, um, give me three years. I need three years to turn this around. Don't set your expectations too high before before that um, period of time. But we won a race in our first year. And then, of course, we just steadily got better year on year. And I learned an incredible amount on that journey and was lucky to work with some very, very talented people. And we created a great, great team that trusted each other, had open communication and, and in the end had energy. And, and many people try to ask me, well, what do you mean they had energy? And it's sometimes difficult to pinpoint in an organization, in a team, or especially in a sporting team. But when everyone is chasing the same goal, when everyone has belief in each other, when you have momentum behind you, I'm a great believer that that, that energy that it creates can can go on to help you achieve a lot of a lot of success. You said something really interesting, which is that you are a person that relies a lot on your gut, on your gut instincts. And I feel like a lot of times people will think of gut instincts and data analysis being antithetical to each other, right? You are either a gut person or you're a data person, but you can't be in between. I would guess that you disagree with that position. I definitely disagree with that position because I think in the end, you 
the basis of everything we do in this sport, it has to come down to the data because at the core of any race team, although we're a business, we need to perform our own track. And to perform means you need to be able to digest the data and learn from the data quickly and make decisions based on the data quickly. You will never take a decision in this sport without having the data to back you up. And even on the business perspective, um, from, I'm sure for a lot of listeners, you you take business decisions based on the numbers. It may be the financial numbers which guide the way your, your business will progress. For us, on track, it's the numbers coming from the data, the cars that, that's been created out on track. But from a business perspective, the numbers and the data still had to add up to show that we were on the right track. So I do believe in gut feeling in terms of the bigger decisions, in terms of your let's say, long-term strategy, but we very much rely on data for the day-to-day and the short-term um, goals. So you right now have started to really embrace some of the ideas around diversity in sport. You've created Dare to be Different, which is an organization that's really emphasizing participation of females in particular in racing. What if you could tell us a little bit about uh, Dare to be Different, what it is trying to achieve, and how that's going? Well, when I hung up my helmet in 2015, I was very sure that I wanted to give something back. I'm a great believer in karma. If you take, you have to give back. Um, And I felt that this sport had given me so much, I wanted to give something back to the next generation. And obviously, having been one of the very few women in the sport, I felt that the next generation had to learn from all the mistakes I made so they didn't make them again, but also had to um, benefit from everything that I had learned. It was maybe a way of me passing the baton on. And Dare to be Different was very much about inspiring the next generation, creating opportunity, not just for female racing drivers, but for the industry as a whole. You know, when you go to a race, there's only 20 drivers on a grid um, on average, but there are thousands of people involved in putting the event on. And motorsport has generally been seen as very male dominated, not very accessible. And I wanted to break down those barriers. I wanted to inspire women to see that there was opportunity. I wanted to take the successful women in the sport and create role models um, and create lasting impact um, so that we would find a more diverse sport in the future. And these things never happen overnight. It it takes many years um, to get more women entering the sport. And it is a very performance-based sport, which means you've got to just increase your talent pool for the best to rise to the top, but it was a, a project that I was very proud of. We we joined forces with the governing body's own initiative um, to form one global platform called Girls on Track, and it's it's something that I think's had a lot of success to date. But as you uh, and I think many people know, it's, it's still a lot more to achieve, and it's easy to talk about diversity, um, but it's another thing to actually take action. And I obviously, being one of the very few women running a team in Formula E wanted to put my money where my mouth was. Um, We didn't have a female in the car because I couldn't find one at the level needed to fight at the front, but we did have one third of our our team being female. We were the most diverse team in top-level motorsport. Um, But like I said to everyone at the time, I'm not getting any world championship points for being the most diverse. Um, Nobody's patting me on the back. But by being the most diverse team, also fighting for the world championship... I think we absolutely showed that diversity works. Diversity brings performance. And I hope we inspired a lot of other teams to maybe think outside the box and cast their their nets wider when they're recruiting. Fantastic. 
And what was your experience when you were coming up through racing? So clearly there weren't a lot of female role models. How did you find your way? Did you find any people that were able to reinforce these themes? You talked about the importance of your family, but were there people in racing proper that kind of helped you through that, provided mentorship, guidance, um, and any any women that, that, uh, that were there for you during that time? There were many people that helped me along the journey, and I had some great female role models in my life. Both my grandparents were very strong, independent women, and my mother. Um, so I always had the feeling that I could achieve anything if I worked hard enough and, and put my mind to it. So that was a great foundation. When I started racing, obviously there were no clear female role models, but there were still a lot of people I looked up to. And like, I, I never viewed myself as being a woman in the sport. I just viewed myself as being a driver. And and in motorsport, we have a, an advantage in that you don't actually see the driver. Out on track, you're wearing a helmet. So actually what you look like is irrelevant in the moment. Um, it's rather your performance. And and I learned very early on in my career that performance is power. If you are someone that performs and achieves, people want to have you in their team. And that's much more powerful um, than anything else. So I, I didn't let all the noise around my gender distract me, all the media attention. I just focused on trying to be the best I could be. And I was, to touch on your question, lucky to have great mentors um, along the way. And obviously, when I got married, I then became a wolf. Um, and my husband was also a, a great supporter. He never wrapped me in cotton wool. Um, there's a very funny story. When I arrived at the British Grand Prix to get in the in the car for the, f- the, the first practice session, we entered the paddock and I said goodbye to him because he, he was obviously going to Mercedes and I was at Williams. And he said okay, but the next time I'm going to see you, you're going to be out on track. And I said, yeah. And, and his parting words, um, just don't be shit. And I'm apologizing <laughs> for swearing on on this podcast, but uh, he was very to the point because he knew for me to succeed in this environment, I was going to have to be good, very good. That's fantastic. So as we start to wrap this up, I wonder if you could give us a few thoughts in terms of how data has shifted in terms of its importance to the world and to the sport of racing. How important data has come in our sport of motorsport has has been enormous in in the past years. The amount that we can now tell from a racing car based on the data is is night and day difference to before. And I think the era where it really started to change was the Michael Schumacher era. Um, He brought a, a level of professionalism into the sport, which has really carried on and, and only gained momentum. And you sometimes see these drivers arriving and you think, okay, they just rock up and jump in the car and drive. But believe me, having having worked with some of the best and being teammates of some of the best, there's a lot of hard work in the background. There's many hours spent poring over the data, trying to find those last milliseconds of performance because that can make the difference between winning a race and not, um, and also winning a world championship or not. So we spend huge amounts of time as drivers, particularly because track time is so limited. We spend a lot of time in simulators away from the track. And obviously on the team side, the data is only getting more and more important. And the harder it is to test and the more pressure that there is from the sporting regulations means that we rely on data more and more. And it's obviously the bright young people that are up coming up in the, the engineering and side of the sport, which are finding very innovative ways to use that data and to learn from that data in, in very 
quick and real-time situations that's bringing us into areas of um, of expertise that just didn't exist in the, the sport previously. So I think it's it's hugely exciting what's what's going on in the in the world of data within motorsport. So Susie, how can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Well, I have a website. There's not a lot on the website um, anymore because I've I've actually left um, Formula E since August, and I'm taking time out before deciding what my next venture is. But please tune in to watch, obviously, a Formula E race. You can find out where that is, obviously, online. Formula One, its season's nearly coming to an end, um, but there's normally some great action on track. And from my side, thank you all very much for listening. Thanks so much for joining us today, Susie. Thank you for having me. Susie Wolf is a former professional racing driver, former CEO of Venturi Racing, and founder of Dare to be Different. In the driving seat, Susie made history in 2014 as the first woman to take part in a Formula One race weekend in 22 years. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Every car will generate the same data. What makes a difference is the humans. And in a world where performance is power, diversity makes a difference. Thank you, Susie Wolf, for reminding us that data does not make decisions, but people do, and the creation of a diverse team that can blend rich information, agile thinking, and strong communication culture will lead to a lot of time spent on the podium. Think about the importance of having and acting on good data in your life and in your organization to discover how you can solve your most complex data challenges with a real-time active intelligence analytics data pipeline that generates better insights and more value from your data, visit Click.com. That's Q-L-I-K dot com.